This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Today I'm talking with Ann Duncan, Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer of State and Local Government, Dell. Uh, and prior to joining uh, Dell, uh, Ann was the Chief Information Officer for the County of Santa Clara, which is located in the heart of Silicon Valley. Santa Clara, by the way, is the 15th largest county in the United States. It's, it's a very big or, uh, organization. Uh, prior to joining Santa Clara uh, County, um, Ann served in the Obama administration as the Chief Information Officer of the United States Environmental Protection Agency. Anne is also an author and a well sought after speaker. Um, Anne, first, uh, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Eileen. It's great to join you here. So Anne, uh, can you, uh, let's start off by your style. Can you describe your leadership style? Yeah, that's a great question, Eileen, and I apologize. You, you probably just turned me out, and you may hear a few more uh, before we get done here, the joys of, of working remotely. Um, so, so my style uh, is that, that um, well, let me tell you this. this. I tell our folks uh, that work for me that there are three things that leaders are responsible for. One is leading and developing people, right? That is making sure that people know what their job is, um, how to do it, they have the tools to do it, and that they have the tools to succeed in the future. Um, the second is to communicate and collaborate across the organization because that's fundamentally how we get work done in large organizations is, is you know, very few people spend their day sitting at their desk actually uh, writing code or doing work. It's, it's more about working with other people, which is one of the things that makes this everyone being distributed so challenging at times. And then the third is to do the job, to make sure there's the, the job gets done. Um, because if you enable your folks with those first two, the job will get done um, with a, without a lot of input from you beyond letting people know what you expect of them. So um, to me, that means that as a leader, my style is, is to essentially make sure people know what's expected of them, make sure they have the tools to do the work, and then let them go do the work. And if they need a roadblock cleared, um, my job is to is to clear those roadblocks and carry water for them and get things done. So that's that's how I see the role of a leader, uh, and, and that's how I try and, and lead myself. Do you ever alter your approach depending upon the situation or audience? I mean, you know, here we are in a very difficult time. Um, or sometimes I know for myself, I I'm at the table and I, I'm the only one who looks like me. <laughs> and sometimes I, I find that my communication skills need to be uh, altered or my communication approach needs to be altered depending upon the receptiveness of the audience I'm working with. So um, do you have any stories to tell or, or do you find that you're kind of in the same situation as I described? Oh, absolutely. Right. I, you know, we, you, you, even in one workday, you can go from an audience that wants to hear every word you have to say to a group of people who really don't care what you have to say. Um, and it really doesn't matter, uh, you know, where you sit in an organization uh, for that to be the case. You know, the, um, uh, as you know, Eileen, the experience of being a leader in D.C. is a great example of, of not only how you have to change your approach to the types of people, but also to your position in the room. Um, 
you know, it's very easy in DC to go from feeling very important to feeling very unimportant in the course of, you know, one experience trying to get into the executive office building and being told that your credentials aren't working today. Um, so as a leader, you really have to gauge the environment you're in, um, you know, start with, are you, should you be listening? Uh, you know, you should always be listening more than you talk, but you know, today maybe your job is entirely to listen. Um, and in an hour, maybe your job is to give people a pep talk. Um, and you know, that, that you may be in an environment where you have to communicate in a different way, have to use different tools from your toolbox to get your message across, whether that means, you know, right now I am trying to influence, uh, or, or right now I'm trying to be directive because that's what needs to be done to get the job done. Um, and that extends to even how you approach a project that I will share that, um, you know, I picked up a responsibility for a large project, uh, in a job recently. Uh, you know, I came into this job and, and, and a big part of it was to get this particular thing done. And I realized that literally the only way that we were going to do it was if I got my senior leadership team in a room for four hours a day, every Wednesday to start figuring out how we were going to get traction on this project. So, you know, that was the opposite of what I told you at the beginning, which is, yep, I go tell people what needs to get done and, and get a shared vision and we go to, I'm going to sit in a room with you for four hours a day, for four hours every week, um, figuring out how we're going to get this work done. Um, and some days it turned into six and, you know, we met like that for months and months until we were able to ramp that down as the project moved forward. Um, so certainly, um, how I work depends upon the people I'm working with and, and what we're trying to achieve and, and uh, the receptiveness of the folks I'm working with, for sure. Now, you, over the course of your career, you probably have met some pretty great leaders, uh, uh, whether it be in Washington, D.C. or back in Silicon Valley. Does any come to mind and any stories that you could tell about what you learned from some of these great leaders? Well, yeah, I, you know, the uh, without a doubt, uh, and no offense to some of the amazing people I've worked for um, and with, um, you know, Stan Myberg and Gina McCarthy at the EPA when Gina was the administrator and Stan was the acting deputy, uh, you know, were about as formidable a leadership team and about as capable and amazing a team as you could possibly work for. Um, and you know, I believed when I went to, to, to work there that I was a pretty good leader. Um, but, you know, I learned a, a ton um, from, from both Gina and Stan. And, you know, Gina was certainly my first exposure to um, someone with the level of political savviness that you have to have to be at the cabinet level. Um, and I certainly learned a lot about how one works in DC and how things get done in DC watching and listening to, to Gina. And um, that was an amazing experience. But Stan, um, you know, sort of the opposite experience in the sense that um, he was, he is <laughs> all about uh, leading and, and managing people and organizations. Um, and seeing him uh, balance, uh, you know, caring about people with making hard decisions when they need to be made was, um, was refreshing in that there are, I think, I think in, in a lot of organizations, um, 
people, you know, people forget about how to make decisions in ways that are compassionate. And that's one of the things that, that I talk about with, I talked about a lot with my last organization about values is there are hard, you, you can make hard decisions and be compassionate at the same time. And I think Stan is a great example of someone who always cares deeply about people, um, but also is able to make those decisions that have to happen to make the government successful um, and does them in a way that is, that is um, both um, easiest on people when they're hard decisions, but also that keeps in mind every opportunity to uh, support people and make the workforce stronger. Um, and, you know, just, just that my experience with Stan as, as a human being, I mean, they're both wonderful human beings, but, you know, since his job was the management side, you got to see experience Stan in that very human way that more managers need to show. You're listening to Leaders in Legend Government on Federal News Network. So I have another question. You know, what, what obstacles and challenges did you encounter on a personal level that you had to overcome to become an effective leader? You talked about, you know, your ability to be able to learn from others. But, I mean, it's rare somebody's born a natural leader. They learn how to lead over time. So tell me about your experience. Yeah. You know, it's funny because um, I was I was doing some interviews not too long ago. And uh, uh, one of the questions that I was given was was to ask people about uh, feedback, you know, what feedback they've received. And to me, that is one of the places in my career. I can think about a couple places where I received feedback that whether it was particularly welcome or not, um, it it sent me down the path to being a better leader. You know, one example is when I was still in my 20s in my first real management job, um, I had this guy who was he's probably 20 years older than I am. Um, and he sat down for his one-on-one and he talked to me. He started telling me what was going on. And I launched into telling him how to solve his problem. And he stopped me and he said, I didn't ask you to solve my problem. I'm just giving you an update. Um, and that was one moment in my career as a leader where I, where I just realized, and the fact that I can still just about, re, you know, describe that conversation verbatim as an indication where it really influenced how I interacted with my staff. I, know I don't have all the answers. Um, I need to listen to people and I also need to understand what they're asking for from me. I don't need, if people don't need help, I don't need to solve their problems. I need to get the update from them, listen to them, maybe offer help if I think they might need it. Um, and, and that really leads to the idea that, that you, you lead people from where they are. Uh, I worked for a guy a few years after that you know, who shared, the, you know, there's always, there's always a, a four-quadrant matrix for everything, and he shared a four-quadrant matrix on how to grow, how to lead people, right, that leads from that idea of, you know, you start where you're telling them what to do, and you end in the fourth quadrant with them telling you what they did, um, and you grow that relationship over time, and it doesn't always start from, particularly as you get further up in the management, it doesn't always start from that first quadrant. You need to assess where that relationship is at a given moment, what your employees actually need from you. So that was one moment. Another moment um, was a few years later when um, a boss I was working for me told me that I didn't take feedback very well. And, you know, that's a great moment. You can't argue with someone when they tell you, you don't take feedback very well. Uh, you know. so. 
and I don't have mixed feelings about that, but what it did cause me to do was to make sure ever since then that um, in any position I was in, I built mechanisms that allowed people in the organization to provide feedback because um, the further you go in a leadership role, the harder it is for people to give you feedback. And it's not necessarily because you stop being open to it, although I certainly see leaders who are, it's that people feel less safe and less able to provide feedback. Um, you know, when you have a thousand people or 10,000 people working for you, than when you can have 10 working for you. Um, so finding ways uh, to create open communication channels is important. And in my last job, we were doing this major restructuring and we had a um, hour every week uh, where we let people uh, chat in questions and they could be anonymous and they usually were. Um, and then I answered them in a, in a, in an audio call. Um, and, you know, I have some really hard, some really hard questions, some really obnoxious questions at times. Um, but I answered all of them and, um, you know, that, that provided, um, tremendous boost to the credibility of our efforts going through that process by being open and transparent. So, you know, those are a couple moments in my career where I really feel like, um, you know, I learned something really important and it was by listening, ironically enough, by listening to feedback from other people and then doing things to make sure to implement that feedback. I'm speaking with Ann Duncan, Chief Strategy Innovation Officer of State and Local Government Dow. After a break, we'll discuss leadership, decision-making, and communication, and why it's important to have the right combination. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Ann Duckin, Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer, State and Local Government, Dell. You know, Ann, um, we were talking about communication and uh, the power of, you know, working with your uh, employees, but what is the most important type of decision you can make as a leader of an organization? I mean, how do you approach that? Wow. The most important type of decision. Um, so I think that when you talk about the most important type of decision, it really needs to be about how you're going to run an organization. And, and by that, I mean, um, what, what your organization structure looks like, uh, what your values and behaviors are as an organization. Um, those kinds of things really set the tone for all the other decisions you're going to make in an organization. Um, so to me, that's really the, the, the setting up for every other decision and for every other um, operational activity you take on. Those are the key things I think you have to do. So do you approach it um, by a committee? You get feedback. Um, do you, are there different ways that you approach the decision process depending upon the situation? Oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, decisions, so, there, so first of all, there's, there's, you know, probably three types of decisions, right? The decisions I'm just going to make for whatever reason as a leader, I'm going to make this decision. And um, that decision process needs to be really clear that I'm going to make that decision. Um, and while I might ask you for your input, 
I'm still going to make that decision. <laughs> so the, the worst thing you want to do is leave people with the impression that they have input that, that, that or I should say that they're going to influence that decision in, in a deeper way than they are, right? Um, the second uh, is joint decision-making. And, and in that case, um, and there are a lot of different approaches to joint decision-making that really depend upon the character of the team, how much trust there is on the team, um, the, the, the power relationships in some cases on a team. There may be folks with, who have a reason to have more input in a decision than another because, say, it's in their area of expertise. Um, so you, know, you can have some very collaborative processes in that case, um, or you can have some less collaborative processes if they're really just a handful of people who should be making that decision. And then the third one is a decision that's delegated. And in those cases, uh, I need to be really clear about what guardrails there are around that decision. So I may be delegating the decision to you, but uh, there may be certain expectations I have. There probably are certain expectations I have. Maybe it's how much money you can spend. Maybe it's decisions around whether you can add staff or hire and fire people or you know, whatever it may be. Um, there's nothing worse than telling people that something is their decision and then coming back and saying, oh, you made the wrong decision. Uh, so to me, uh, you first need to understand who is actually making the decision and communicate that clearly. And then you need to make sure that you have decision-making processes that are inclusive of those people who have to be, who are empowered to be involved in that decision uh, and, and, and that every voice of those people that are empowered to be part of the decision are, is heard. Um, and it's often true, depending upon team dynamics, that there are people with legitimate input into the decision who aren't heard, either because of their personal style or because of the organizational style or because of the style of somebody else in the team. And you may need to use some uh, more structured decision processes to make sure that those people get heard. And you brought up in the first segment the importance of listening sometimes more than you talk, right? To, to truly be a good leader, to understand, to lead your people from where they are. Um, communications are key to any successful organization. I think we'll both agree. But uh, do you, how do you do that? Do you set aside specific times to cast your vision to your employees and to other leaders? How do you communicate both to your organization and across the organization? Yeah, you know, that is such a hard problem, Eileen, because as you know, I could I can tell people the same information 15 times in 10 different ways, and, and some portion of them still will never hear it. Um, so I think that with with within your organization, the one that you manage as a leader, um, the most the most important is is to identify key messages and communicate those frequently and through lots of different channels. Uh, so it, you know, it may be that, you know, so for my last job, we had a, we had a, a, a newsletter, which, which, you know, really was simply a, a um, email with links to our website, but we had a newsletter, we had uh, regular all hands meetings, we had regular all management meetings, we had messages that we intentionally cascaded from the leadership team. Um, and I would still have people say we didn't communicate. Um, so you know, you, you can't, you, communication is you can't win, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't play, right? Uh, you absolutely have to have to continually communicate those messages through as many channels as are appropriate for your organization. And it does vary 
you know, based on the organization and on the style, right? Some of the things we did in my last job would not make any sense now with everyone at home. Um, and so, you know, those other channels that, that we had available as well, like, you know, anonymous feedback and these, these call-in sessions or, or text-in sessions where people could ask questions, um, those are also important to get out the questions that maybe people are uncomfortable sharing. Um, so that's, you know, your own organization, but obviously you have to communicate across the organization and with your peers and with the folks you work for. And so um, in organizations where there are a lot of, of folks, the last organization I worked in, you know, there were 42 um, departments and agencies, which meant really, you know, I had, I had 42 or more peers that I needed to be in communication with regularly. And I obviously couldn't meet with all those folks um, on a regular basis. So, you know, we took advantage of meeting with the most important stakeholders. And then again, of, of finding ways to broadcast communications to other interested parties. Um, but it's really important in that sense to figure out who are the people who Im can impact your ability to get your work done uh, as peers and as your bosses um, and as or those other at higher levels in the organization than you and make a plan to communicate with those folks that will that if you don't communicate with them uh, will likely cause you to fail. <laughs> so that's really when you get right down to it, you communicate with your team because number one, you care about them. And number two, you're not going to get the work done without them. And that's equally the reason to communicate across the organization to your to your peers is having the relationships with the folks who can either help you accomplish your results or will cause you to fail and accomplish your results if you don't have that communication. You're listening to Leaders in Government on Federal News Network. So how do you focus your time horizons and how has it changed as you've taken a more senior position? You had uh, mentioned before it, there's a much different communication structure. Your leadership changes if you have 10 people reporting to you versus if you have a thousand. So as you scaled your, you know, your career has scaled, um, how have you approached, uh, you know, your, your, the way that you focus your, on your time and how has that changed your horizons? Yeah, I mean, I think that that um, time management never gets any easier. <laughs> so your own time, you know, is always a constant battle for for what's most important to spend your time on. Um, but in terms of time horizons, um, as a leader of a large organization, you have to be looking out um, several years at what you want the organization to achieve, particularly in the public sector where, where unfortunately it still takes too long to do things. Um, you really have to take a long vision of, of where you're gonna go. So, so otherwise you're gonna be very frustrated that you don't see progress. So you, you have to take the long vision to see progress, but you also have to have a short-term view of what we're gonna get done now. So. While I recognize it takes a long time to get things done in government, I'm unwilling to acquiesce to the fact that it takes a long time to get things done in government. I'm always going to look for what we can deliver in the short term. And as, as I think you know, Eileen, you know, I've been very engaged in, in the digital services movement. A big part of that is not only modernizing government technology, but delivering technology much, much faster. So as we look at the organization, we look at the long term of where are we moving the organization itself? How are we growing and developing people over time? What kind of reorganizations might we want to do? But in the short term, we really have to be looking at and want to be looking at 
how are we going to deliver capabilities to support the public and how are we going to do that quickly? And, you know, I, I want to be able to have those timelines be that we are delivering functionality in our core systems at eight to 10 to 12 week increments. Um, and 12 weeks is probably too long. And, you know, it'd be great if it were three weeks, which is sort of best in class. Um, but the fact that, that I don't want to wait two or three years to put functionality in front of, of the public or, in our, or the users inside the agency, um, that's not reasonable. So um, you have to be looking at, at essentially two timelines or three timelines uh, in terms of how you move things forward. And then of course you can layer on top of that budget timelines and, and, and government reporting timelines and all those other things that you have to be looking at. So you have to be looking at a lot of different time horizons at once, which is why we're all thankful for the senior advisors in the government and chiefs of staff who keep us from uh, losing our minds. So I had to ask you, uh, you know, you, you, you talked about, um, you know, time horizons and, and, you know, choosing what to do, but, you know, George Washington, for an example, a great leader, uh, by every, you know, you know, every perspective, he lost more battles than he won, but his overall strategy obviously won in the end. So, you know, I guess you could learn from him, choose your battles well. When you come to Washington, D.C., you know, there's, you know, there's opposing forces, right? And, and there's a lot of complexity to getting something done. So as a leader, how do you choose your battles Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, you cannot fight every battle. Um, and so I think that, you know, first of all, it's looking at what is truly important to accomplish. Um, so so let's, let's take digital services. Um, you know, what are the battles you have to fight that are truly important to, to get digital services done? Um, you have to figure out how to hire people in a way that is going to be faster. Probably that may not be your number one. You have to certainly figure out how to apply things faster. Um, if you're going to have outsourced development, um, but more importantly, you actually have to figure out how to do that development faster. Um, and so, you know, you can, you have to, the first battle you have to fight is figure out how to set your teams up for success to, to do development faster. Um, and to, you know, the, then you, you don't have to fight the battle that says, I'm going to get procurement reform for the entire government. You can pick the battle that is, I'm going to figure out how to create a multi-award vehicle that I can buy sprints off of and, and get that done once. And then I've got a solution. And I'd rather fight the battle to get procurement reform done for the entire government, but that's a distraction. So what is sort of the minimum, you know, to trying to trying to create a minimum viable product to get something out? What's the minimum viable battle I can fight uh, in order to solve my problem, right? Civil service reform would be great, but if I got direct higher authority for IT, which everyone has now, well, that probably solved my problem for now. So then I can go on to trying to figure out how I can get DevSecOps because um, I've got to figure out how to get the security team and the operations team to speed up those processes to enable it. That, you know, so that's how I pick my battles is what, what battle has to be fought to solve my problem. And it's often not the battle that looks like the obvious one, right? Like government-wide procurement reform, reform, 
I'm not going to win that battle anytime soon, but I can get a multi-award vehicle to work with. And while I will go, well, procurement will still be broken, I can move my project forward. I'm speaking with Ann Duckin, Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer, State and Local Government Dell. Coming up next, we'll talk about being a leader, and that is trying to lead through change. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Ann Duncan, Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer, State and Local Government, Dell. You know, getting organizations to adopt change is one of the biggest leadership challenges for any a leader, any type of leader. How do you approach leading an organization to adopt major change? I mean, you've written some pretty um, in-depth papers in regards to the digital transformation and needing to speed it up. And let's face it, that, that means change. So how, how do you get an organization to start gravitating for a change that many may think is impossible? So, you know, change is, is about, it's all about people and culture. Um, and if you look at every organization in the government or outside the government that has truly changed how they deliver technology, it has started by changing the culture that people live in. And it, it requires inspiring and exciting people to do the work. Um, it also requires figuring out what was making them not be inspired and excited to do the work. I mean, people don't come to work in the government because they think they want to be bureaucrats. They come to work for the government to do great things. Uh, and in spite of the things that you know, people say, um, government employees are some of the, federal government employees are some of the smartest, most capable, most uh, dedicated and, and uh, mission-driven people I've ever worked with. So to get things, people to change, it's clearing the roadblocks that are keeping them from changing. And, and I'll give you just a couple examples. One is, is that, um, you know, we see a tremendous amount of risk aversion in government. Um, and so how do, you make, how do you make it so that people feel safe taking some risk? Um, and, you know, you feel, you see an incredible amount of people who um, are just sort of, uh, don't have a bias towards action anymore. And, and that's not because they aren't motivated, it's because they're so tired of fighting bureaucracy. So how do you take away the roadblocks and make them uh, have a bias for action again. So those are two examples of the major culture changes required in government to really help uh, people, you know, move forward at the at the staff level. Um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we have been, Greg Gobat and I have been talking about how to do that at the big government picture level, um, which I'm happy to talk about as well. If you'd like to meet a slide, most definitely. Okay. Uh, you co-authored a paper with him called the Day One Project, which and and the Day One Project is a group of veteran policymakers um, that you know uh, advocates for uh, policy and initiatives around topics such as education, workforce, energy, environment, health, and and life sciences, innovation, IT, all kinds of things. But you co-authored a paper with Greg about the digital transformation. Can you tell us a little bit about it and? And again, that's a huge subject and a lot of change. It is. And, you know, we put forth four pretty big ideas. Um, and, and people are talking about them, which is exciting that, that the conversation is happening. Uh, but the, the, basically, we said these four things would help enable scaling the transformation we've seen. Because we've seen since 2014, um, there's a lot of people doing little, little digital transformations, but not a lot of scale. 
So he said four things. One is we believe that the federal government basically needs a chief operating officer. Um, and after lots of discussion about what that might be, um, we felt like that should be the, the GSA. Um, the GSA administrator should be elevated to the cabinet level um, and that they should be able, they should be empowered um, to help with, to prioritize policy delivery in, in those areas they're responsible for, which really are many of the things that are going to enable digital services to be successful, those HR things, those procurement things that really make a difference. Um, the second thing is that we have a, there are a ton of, of there's a ton of, of smart people, uh, really experienced people who are getting ready to retire from the federal government. And there's a gap in what we've brought in terms of fellowships into the government at uh, the senior leadership level. These are, you know, sort of mid-career folks who have lots and lots of experience in, in leading development and modernizing. And we propose a 2,000-person uh, uh, fellowship uh, called the Presidential Leadership Fellow to bring leaders in who understand digital transformation. And those are just replace some retiring folks. It's not a new investment. It's just simply replacing some of the people retiring. And then the third one, you know, we, we've uh, built a lot of playbooks and we, we propose an agency transformation playbook to help people understand how to scale this digital transformation work they're doing. And then the fourth is a, tra is a uh, transformation advisory board um, that, you know, is empowered by the, the White House um, to provide guidance and to oversee progress on transformation. Uh, we liken it to the defense advisory board. Um, and the big thing here is that it be something that span administration. So these aren't people who are appointed by one president and leave at the end of their term, but they're people with fixed terms so they can span between administrations and that will help create continuity in the work we've done. We've been really lucky. The work that, that was started in the Obama administration has pretty much been carried forward in the Trump administration and, and we're confident that it'll be carried forward in the Biden administration. Um, because you know, a lot of like-minded people are out there, but how do we make sure that these efforts don't stall between administrations? So those are sort of the four big picture things that we think are necessary to enable scaling digital transformation across the whole government. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. And OMB has led the way on the federal data management strategy, showing a blueprint for harnessing one of the federal government's most strategic assets, data. Do you think the Biden administration will increase the focus in this area? Um, so, you know, I, I, based on everything I've seen, um, I think that's the case. I think that uh, we've all learned over the last decade or so that data is the key to everything um, anymore. Uh, so it's, the, it's, the, it's a big risk. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of data the government owns, uh, and it's a big opportunity because the government owns a lot of data. So, there's, we need to make sure the data is secure. And we need to make sure the data is, is used and is shared when it's appropriate. So I think you'll see the Obama era initiatives for data transparency, um, the, uh, uh, the, the focus on data security, uh, and the focus on being able to actually use data uh, to help uh, citizens uh, lead better lives. I think all those things will continue based on you know, the public things that the, that the president-elect has said. And reading the proposed 22, uh, 2022 budget from the Biden camp, it's clear that there's in, increased spending, uh, in particular on IT around AI and ML. 
Um, many believe that you must have a very strong data governance framework to involve, uh, to avoid you know you know bad decisions growing worse over time. You know as as ML models may develop their own sense of bias because there's only one set of data, or even worse, there's racial bias that may come out of that over time if the data is being uh, you know gathered from only one source, for an example. So you know um, what are your thoughts on that, and and you know how how you know, you've written this paper about the digital transformation strategy, but at the core of it, let's face it, the foundation is data. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, the, the chief data officer uh, initiative that has, that has come uh, in, that's coming into place here is a huge opportunity uh, to provide some oversight in that space. And, and I mean, oversight in the uh, you know, roll up your sleeves and get engaged way, not in the, uh, you know, well, here's a list of things you have to do. Um, and so I think that that a real key here is to make sure that the chief data officers are actively engaged in ensuring good use of data um, and that they're actively engaged in ensuring that the models, to the extent we can, because it's a hard problem, that models are unbiased uh, and, and and that they're um, used equitably, and that they reinforce uh, the administration's goals and not undermine them. And that does mean that the chief data officers need to engage at a deep level um, and not be essentially uh, compliance officers. It's very easy for those the chief data officers all have a list of things they're supposed to do, boards they're supposed to set up, things they're supposed to certify. It's very easy in the federal government for people to get so focused on compliance that they miss what they're supposed to do. Um, I think that's something that um, security programs have suffered from is everybody's, everybody's got so many boxes to check from a compliance standpoint that they don't take a minute to step back and make sure that they're actually doing the right things for their agencies. Um, and, and that can be a risk. And I think the same risk exists for chief data officer role. So it's going to be really important for those folks to very much focus on how they can add value to the programs and how they can make sure that data is used uh, appropriately and, and equitably. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today we're talking with Ann Duncan, Chief Strategy Innovation Officer, State and Local Government, Dell. Next, we'll find out how Ann's, Ann, what's Ann's advice to the next generation of federal leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Ann Duncan, Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer, State and Local Dell. And we're about to see a huge change in leadership in the White House. We know that about 4,000 um, individuals would change jobs uh, that are presidential appointees. Uh, and so there, there's a hurry up and wait kind of situation for career service senior um, executives and leaders that are here in place. What, what advice do you have to give them as we're going through this process? I mean, you, you experienced a little bit of that um, when you took your role at EPA. I think uh, I had you on another show at that time and you were waiting for um, your Senate uh, confirmation at that time, which kind of puts you in that place of you're having the job, but you really don't have the authority of the job. Yeah, and I think, you know, that, that if anything, um, 
I think acting officials uh, tend to be a little, you know, they're, they're, they're very timid and I don't mean this in a derogatory way. Um, there's a lot of deference to the political folks that are coming in and that's right. That's good and bad. Um, the, the, the career folks uh, it's, it's good because the, the job of the political team is to set the agency's agenda um, and, and to set an agenda that aligns with the, with the, incoming administration's goals and objectives. Uh, it's the career staff's role to use their great expertise um, to advise and to execute on that agenda. Um, and so I think that there are many things that the career staff can do to continue to execute on, uh, on the things in the agenda that, are non, that don't change from, from administration to administration and that are not controversial. Uh, I think it requires good judgment on the part of senior leaders to understand what's appropriate to move forward uh, in that interim period before their leadership arrives and those things are inappropriate. So I would never encourage someone um, in a senior role in an administration who's waiting for the incoming politicals to do things uh, that are questionable or that they know they shouldn't do because that's not going to align with the incoming agenda. But there's a lot of fundamental blocking and tackling um, that needs to happen, that makes government run better. Uh, and, and that period where you're waiting for the incoming is a great time to do that blocking and tackling, to tune up the organization in, in a positive way, to make sure you're ready to execute on the mission um, and to drive those things forward that are utterly non-controversial. And, and, and people in every organization, they know what those are. Right? They know what's not controversial, what's not going to change, what they can work on. Um, and I encourage people to do those things, to work on those things that they know that they can do, um, and then to be ready uh, to um, work closely with the incoming team and to advise and consent, their, their, you know, to provide advice, excuse me, advice and consent is something else, to provide advice um, uh, to, um, to the leaders that are coming in to help them understand the new organization and um, to, to help them make good decisions because political appointees, you know, come from the position of someone who came in as an appointee, knowing very little about the organization, of course, you'll have appointees who are coming back and appointees who've never been in the organization. Um, they need to be prepared to help those folks understand where the organization is now um, and how to navigate it and what needs to be done and uh, be prepared to help. So, you know, it's fundamentally move forward what's appropriate, uh, wait on the things that, that are inappropriate to move on and make sure the organization is ready uh, to get the leaders up to speed and, and to go on day one. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Ann Duncan. First, Ann, I wanna um, thank you for all your years of public service, both to the federal government and to the state of California. Um, and I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some really valuable advice. Thanks, Eileen. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I'm Eileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Podcast One.